the heart of this work is how things are really interconnected. You know, what makes a birch tree successful in a hole in the forest has to do with so many interconnected things, light, temperature, humidity. And one could make a parallel about health. And I think health more and more to uh, the integrative medicine and health community is emergence. Health emerges out of all of these organ systems interacting into an orchestra. And that way of seeing has translated a lot to the approaches we take in studying mind-body practices and contemplative practices. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is clinical researcher and internationally recognized Tai Chi teacher, Peter Wayne. Peter is the Bernard Osher Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. He's also the founding director of the Tree of Life Tai Chi Center in Boston. In his research, Peter studies how and why mind, body, and contemplative movement practices affect aging and chronic health conditions. But Peter's not just your run-of-the-mill clinical researcher. He's got a PhD in evolutionary biology, and he was trained to study trees through an ecological lens. This background gives him a unique perspective, as you'll hear, on how biological systems are interwoven and dynamic and can't really be studied in isolation. This frame has made his research efforts unusually holistic and integrated. In our conversation, we explore a lot of these ideas. First, Peter describes his ecological background, and we get into embracing multiple lines of causality and how to do non-reductionist science. We talk a good deal about the mind-body system, the essential role of the body in thought, emotions, and health, and what it would look like to collapse those terms, mind and body, into one unified construct. He talks about harnessing the wisdom of the body through contemplative practice, trauma and safety in the body, and the relationship between physical and emotional patterns and how we work with them. We explore how the Eastern concept of subtle energy relates to Western views of the body, and Peter shares his thoughts on the role of integrative medicine in dealing with climate change. I feel so fortunate to know Peter and have been able to practice with him from the many years he's taught Tai Chi at the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. It's always been a highlight of that event for me. He's truly a gifted teacher. And we're thrilled that he'll be teaching again with us this year, and we're making this year's SRI available to anyone online. The topic is the mind, the human-earth connection, and the climate crisis. It's going to be awesome, and you can learn more and register at mindandlife.org. Just look for the online speaker series. As I think you'll hear from this episode, Peter's knowledge and experience is extraordinarily deep, yet he speaks in such clear and accessible ways that he makes these ideas come alive, both cognitively and in the felt sense of our bodies. Overall, I think Peter represents a lot of what's at the core of contemplative science. He brings together multiple perspectives to investigate the mind with a deep sense of how our minds extend both throughout our bodies and into the world. It was truly a joy to speak with Peter for this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It's my pleasure to share with you Peter Wayne. Well, I'm here with Peter Wayne. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Wendy, it's my pleasure. I would love to start. I often like to begin with some background framing of kind of the perspectives that, that the guest is bringing. And I think you bring such a particularly interesting mix of perspectives um, to your work. I always think of you uh, in the contemplative space as studying um, embodied practices and specifically Tai Chi and Qigong and kind of mind-body interventions, but I know you were also trained as an evolutionary biologist, right, and did a lot of work in ecology and climate before that. So could you take us through kind of how your interests were developing and being shaped over that time and um, just your path so far that's gotten you here? Yeah. So my path has not been a linear one, like I think many people that we all work with. Uh, right. They have different backgrounds that make sense in the rearview mirror, but along the way, there were forks in the road that took us to where we are. Yeah. I grew up really loving science and math, and so I went to a science and math high school and, um, and was drawn to nature and evolutionary biology. 
And I did my PhD in evolutionary biology of photosynthesis and birch trees and how that, what you might call feeding behavior during the day, influenced their ecological ability to occupy different niches. Um, after doing that for about six or seven years, it interacted a lot with climate change research. We were interested in forests as sources to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. So I became mm. interested in climate change. But the heart of this work is how things are really interconnected. You know, what makes right. a birch tree successful in a hole in the forest has to do with so many interconnected things, light, temperature, humidity. And that way of seeing has translated a lot to the approaches we take in studying mind-body practices and contemplative practices. Early on, the other parallel route that connects these things is I became very interested in high school as a young teenager in Chinese philosophy and sports and martial arts in particular. And that's where I started my study of Tai Chi. Uh -huh. And that's always been percolating in the background. It followed me through college, through graduate school. And when I moved to Boston uh, to begin graduate school, I opened up a Tai Chi school here. And somewhere around the year 2000, I realized I wanted to bring these two interests a little bit closer together. So I took my training in experimental research and biology and evolutionary biology, and I brought it together with my training in traditional Chinese medicine and Tai Chi. And uh, that's the beginning of this era of my research. Yeah, I love it. So can you give an example or talk a little more about how you bring this kind of ecological frame into mind-body research? Yeah, one of the first studies that actually drew me out of doing evolutionary biology. I remember sitting at my desk and getting a phone call from a group at the Harvard Medical School, which turned out to be the Osher Center, which is where I am now. And they said, we're starting a Tai Chi study and we understand you have some experience and you're a scientist. Would you be willing to interact? Oh, and it cool. turned out to be a study with my colleague, who's now our research director, Gloria Ye. And it was a study of Tai Chi for people with very serious and late stage heart failure very ill people, some of them waiting for a heart transplant. And our pilot study, it was a small study with 30 people, a randomized trial, um, showed very provocative results. We not only showed improvements in exercise capacity and quality of life, but even uh, proteins that are assays of heart stress, uh, natriuretic mm. peptides. And some of the editorials that came out um, said, this is interesting, but how do we know this isn't just all placebo? Mm. What What is the active ingredient? Mm -hmm. And that question, I remember being asked that, led me to think, wow, in medicine, do you only get to pick one active ingredient? In right. ecology, there's a lot of active ingredients, and they're all interacting with each other in a very ecological, complex way. So that led us to creating a, a framework for studying Tai Chi, which later we called the eight active ingredients of Tai Chi. But it articulated that obviously movement, but lots of cognitive processes, breathing, social interactions, mm. um, context, all are important in an ecological way. So that's an example of how that thinking from studying plants and nature uh, translated into the conceptual model we use in our research. Yeah, that's really helpful. I feel like also when I was beginning in the contemplative science space, and I was um, focused more on sitting practice of meditation, but there was it was coming out of kind of the medical model, and it was the same exact conversation of what are the active ingredients here, just like you would study a drug or something. And I think the field has increasingly come to realize just the perspective that you show that there are many factors playing in, and some of them are you know what's going on in the individual, and some of them are interpersonal and the social context and potentially even the physical context and all of these things. So um, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind for this field. And I, I feel like, I hope it's becoming more accepted. Have you had a sense of a shift kind of in the way it's being viewed? Yeah, I think the shift happened, is happening for two reasons. One, I think the science underlying the efficacy and effectiveness of these practices, as well as the basic biological nature, you know, that there's plausible mechanisms has grown. But at the same time, I think what we would call conventional medicine is evolving. I mean, they've mm -hmm. gotten more and more atomistic and reductionistic, looking at molecules and genes mm -hmm. and, and all sorts of very small 
components, but where it's brought them is to realize how interconnected all those processes are. Right. And so out of, you know, in some odd, almost yin and yang way, the deeper they've gone, the more they see the connections. And so when we look at especially complex polymorbid conditions, let's say, you know, high risk fallers and older adults, it's not due to one thing. And there's no one pill that's going to fix it. Um, you know, high risks of falling involves movement, it involves emotion and fear of falling, it involves cognition and how you pay attention to your body, um, it involves the environment that you live in, is it safe, is it well lit? And so I think at the same time people have been mining the richness of these traditional practices, they've been finding the same biopsychosocial holistic models on their own. And I think uh, this is really exciting, and I think it positions integrative health and integrative medicine uh, to make some great synergistic strides together um, with mm. the current medical paradigm. Yeah. Part of that is making me step into this more philosophical realm of um, how we view and try to understand causes and causality mm -hmm. and how we often are just looking at like the most proximate cause or the, you know, we want it to be one single thing. And even in like a political landscape, for example, or, you know, the kinds of social issues that we are wrestling with right now, it's very natural to kind of try to point a finger at like, this is the one reason why this happened. Yeah. But in fact, it's becoming more and more apparent, I think, that there are so many reasons and so many layers and, you know, look back at history and, for example, the history of racism in this country has led to so many um, injustices. And so I'm just, I, I don't know how that fits into what we're talking about, but it just seems like a much yeah. bigger picture. Well, I see it. Um, I see where I, the heart of what you're asking is really important. We, in our reductionist model, we like this sort of gear system of this gear turning causes that, this very right. direct uh, simplified causal arrow. And in some cases, you know, you fall down and break a bone, you have this proximal association. Right. Um, but it was interesting. Uh, I know that you've done an interview with Evan Thompson, and Evan yeah. Thompson's been a great friend and colleague and, and such an important force at Mind and Life. And I had the opportunity of writing a paper with him a few years ago about embodied cognition and posture in Tai Chi. Mm. And what was really striking was at the end of it, we went and looked through the paper and every place that there was the word mechanism, Evan suggested we replace it with processes. And that was really striking to me. And we yeah. had some discussions about that. And he said, sure, executive function may be an important aspect of preventing falls, but it's not necessarily a mechanism. You don't know because it's a process embedded in many layered uh, system with other processes interacting. And so that leads more to, as opposed to this additive or causal model, more one where emergence happens. Right. And I think in his writing about embodied cognition, um, one could make a parallel about health. And I think health more and more to uh, the integrative medicine and health community is emergence. Health emerges out of all of these organ systems interacting into an orchestra. And mm. good health is when there's rich crosstalk and and biofeedback loops and mm. resilience. And bad health is when you have breakdown between these interconnected systems. And that's what right. happens with aging. You know, your hearing gets a little weaker. Your sensation in your feet gets a little weaker. There's less information crosstalking in the system. Interesting. Yeah. And has this view changed the way that you think about approaching science as a as a practice? Because a lot of science is, is inherently reductionist, right? And you're trying to control all the variables and just change one. But with this view, you're really trying to understand all these factors, like, for example, the eight factors that you said about Tai Chi. So do you try to study them each, you know, quantify them individually? Or how do you approach that? That's a great question. And it's, it's a balancing act. Um, mm -hmm. I will say one of the great thing that's happening right now at the National Center for Complementary Integrative Health, which is um, now under new leadership of Helene Langevin, who used to be uh, the director of, of our Osher Center and a long-term oh, oh. colleague and friend, is this movement towards this more ecological model. 
to go beyond individual organ systems. And if you think about how NIH is organized, you have the Heart Institute, you have the right. you know, neurology, and it really is these silos. But right. we know that health requires understanding of how these different systems interact. So there's a movement now in their new strategic plan, which is coming out, to talk about whole person health and to go beyond these organ-based views. So I think they themselves and us are, are thinking, how does that change the questions we ask and the way we conduct our research? And one of the challenges in clinical research, as you know, Wendy, is, you know, what's your primary outcome? And you power mm-hmm. the whole study around one specific physiological or clinical measure. Right. And power meaning how many participants you recruit and yes, things like that, right? Yeah. Stati- statistical power. Yeah. And, uh, and that's valuable if you want to answer a very specific question. But when you impose this big intervention, meditation, Tai Chi, lifestyle and nutrition changes, yeah, you may change a marker of diabetes or blood pressure, but you're also changing the whole person. Right. And so one question that I think we're starting to ask is, are there measures of the whole person that are important to look at in addition to the very specific physiological measures? That's a really deep question. Are there measures of the whole person? Well, there are questions about quality of life. There's questions about meaning. You know, we're interested in not changing just symptoms um, and the markers of disease, but how people experience their their life, the quality of their life. So there are measures of quality of life. Um, There are some really interesting measures around embodied wellness that are coming out from the interception research. Mm. Um, Is my body a safe place to be? Do I feel Mm. at peace living in my body? Those are profound experiences, even for people with terminal illnesses. So I'd say in terms of how we conduct the research, in addition to asking what the outcomes are, what we use as control groups is Mm. a really tricky thing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, is there placebo Tai Chi? Some people will think that the Tai Chi I teach is placebo. Um, (laughs) It's not not very good or real, but but it's still tricky because even the most psychosocially obvious variable, for example, in a drug trial, the person administering the drug doesn't know whether it's the real drug or the placebo. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're inert uh, in theory. But we know now that the patient-practitioner interaction is huge. But in a drug trial, you can make them pretty neutral. They act the same way since they don't know. Right. But the teacher in a meditation intervention or a Tai Chi class or an exercise class is not inert. Right. They model it. They inspire. They have to embody it to teach it well. And so even just controlling for social attention becomes really a tricky question yeah. um, as, as we design these, these studies that have more of an ecological impact. Yeah, this exploration is also making me think of something that I feel you've really done a great job of bringing together at a conceptual level, the idea of mind and body. And I think I remember you even presenting at the Summer Research Institute once And you had a slide that just said mind-body as one word with no space and no hyphen, which is how we usually see it. So just saying that, like, we shouldn't even distinguish these as different words or constructs. Um, Can you say a little bit about how you view the mind-body system? I can, but I feel the more I explore this, the more ignorant I am. And and I'm not trained, as as I said in the beginning, I'm trained... From studying trees <laughs> and and an empirical exposure to this, I'm not a, a philosopher or a cognitive neuroscientist or um, a contemplative scholar, but I do see this extreme bias towards um, this split that we all fight against. Descartes split, you know. Mm-hmm. I think, therefore, I am, or the mind and the body. And there's good research and the the work that Evan and I put together and many others are working on in the field of embodied cognition and uh, embodied wellness, you know, how we move deeply affects how we feel and think. Mm. And and how we think deeply affects how we move. And to bring that to a very specific example, going back to falls, if you watch how an older person who's had a history of falls moves through an environment, Mm -hmm. you can see the anxiety 
in the way mm. that they hold their chest and neck. There's a guarded sense. There's always a, a vigilance and a fear mm -hmm. of falling. Uh, they're distracted, maybe monitoring their environment and less aware of where they are. Mm. And so one does not need to scan the amygdala to see fear. Right. And the question is, does fear start in the amygdala and tell the physical body what to do? Or can you create an experience in the flesh that influences our perception and our experience. And I think it's dialectic. Um, right. And so I, in many ways, um, have been conceptually moving towards removing that hyphen. already spoke some about this, but I, I wonder if there's more you want to say about kind of the wisdom that is in the body and the value of embodied approaches for health and wellness. Yeah. One of the ways we start our Tai Chi classes in our clinical trials, um, but often at Mind and Life as well, you know, we just check in and we could do a scan with our head you know, or our mind, whatever we call that. Again, I'm, the language, I even <laughs> yeah, get tripped up in. Um, but we can also start by just standing and starting to shift our weight and just letting shift happen. Not moving to get anywhere, but moving to feel the pieces of their body, of our bodies, and where there is and is not interconnections. So you start shifting and you go, oh, parts of my feet are online right now. I have some awareness of them, some sensation, but there are some nooks and crannies that aren't. And maybe through rocking and use of movement, metaphor, um, imagery, you know, we might remind people that they're made of liquid and there's mm -hmm. this warm ocean and, and just feeling and experiencing themselves as a liquid body may change how much of their wholeness they can feel in the connections. And it's, it's profound because within about five or 10 minutes, we've scanned the whole body and, and it gives us a different sense of ourself. Oh, um, it does feel good to have a connection from my foot through my knee, my thighs, my belly. There's parts of my back that are shut down. The left side of my shoulder is not here, but it makes us aware of ourselves in an embodied somatic way. And I think that's a very different way of experiencing ourselves from just a, a thought form. It, it anchors us and it gives us some tools um, and it allows us to watch our emotions from that more visceral framework. And so it's a, it's a different way of experiencing and living in the world. And so I think these practices have brought me to questions I wasn't, I haven't been trained to answer yet. Um, mm. So I, I find colleagues to, to interact with but going back to one of your questions earlier that loops back to this, which is, you know, how has your ecological thinking or these questions you're asking led to your experimental approaches? One of the ways, which I think has really been a strong piece of the mind and life community, is first-person narrative. Mm. And so in some of our studies, for example, with we just finished a study of breast cancer survivors with chronic post-surgical pain their experience of the cancer journey, taking them apart, labeling as BRAC2 gene person, mm -hmm. um, going through radiation, having pieces reconfigured, their self-image really made them question their trust of their body mm -hmm. and their narratives. We can measure depression. We can measure anxiety. We even measured posture um, and um, embodiment with quantitative instruments. But mm -hmm. hearing what they said in their own words was profound. Um, and they could articulate things that we can't measure right. quantitatively. Um, right. And some of those were this diagnosis and the journey through treatment really increasingly made me mistrust my body. Mm -hmm. This is, and I'm putting my own words in here, it's like Humpty Dumpty being back together again. This Qigong practice in a group of women who've all, 
been on the same journey has brought me back into my body. I appreciate mm. how mind and body work together. Um, and it feels like a safe place. And I've mm. regained my trust in my body. Um, mm -hmm. It's just profound to hear that. But it's just a, for me, coming out of quantitative measures of photosynthesis and gait and everything we can measure physiologically, I still value all that. But there's something about the first person narrative that creates a very rich, deep context to interpret all that and becomes mm -hmm. important, if you can call it data or information on its own. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It's almost like what's coming up for me as, as you're talking is it feels like that first person narrative can almost be part of that more integrative um, perspective, right? Like, yeah, y yeah, you're not breaking apart the individual pieces. It's like at this higher level of integration that, that you're able to express that. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think we have some great physicians at the OSHA Center and their emphasis is on listening. Mm. And they they want to meet people where their distress is. And that's where healing for them is, to help them with their distress. Yeah. They can change their numbers. They can, you know, suggest things to manage symptoms. But real healing for them is where's the distress. And so I think we need to listen um, at that level and not be so certain that the things we're going to measure uh, are the most important ones. Right. We, we just did another study on COPD, and we're obviously trying to help people um, have more capacity and quality of life. But the narrative work in there led to this whole insight into the shame of breathlessness hmm. and how shameful it was for people to be out with their friends and not be able to keep up. And mm -hmm. had we not asked them these stories and probed deeper and deeper, we would have missed this whole rich construct. Hmm. Yeah, that is really rich. Some of the things that you've just mentioned about um, people being able to feel safe in their bodies and the importance of that kind of integration and really safety as like a core construct is making me think about um, trauma and how various kinds of trauma are held in the body. And I also feel like there's a shift that's happening now. You know, when I was trained in neuroscience with kind of a psychiatric bent Trauma was like capital T trauma, and we only thought about it as like really severe, significant events. And, you know, there was actually a list of these kind of quote unquote traumatic events. And I think there is an expansion happening in our understanding of what constitutes trauma to the body and nervous system. Um, and that it is actually, you know, little, little T trauma, relational traumas, developmental traumas, um, societal injustices, all of these things that many of us are exposed to and kind of accumulating in our bodies. I'm just wondering your perspective on that as someone who works so much with the body and, and how you've come to view trauma. Uh, I think those are really important questions and observations, Wendy. And I agree. I think all of us go through lots of micro traumas and some of us bigger ones as well. At the very simplest level, we can and I use these metaphors to bring people into observing and to observe without trying to force a change or judge it. Um, we've all banged our shins mm -hmm. and that hurts. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we bang it and um, it doesn't fully resolve. Things get glued up. The tissues get glued together in this fibrosis. Mm -hmm. But even when it heals, sometimes we have the memory of that, uh, similar mm -hmm. with back pain. And so there's a great phrase uh, that we use in movement and mind-body movement is kinesophobia, is fear of movement. And mm -hmm. even after the tissue itself has been healed, um, there's still the memory of that. So we may walk in a guarded way. Right. And guarding has evolutionary benefits. It protects us from re-injuring something before it's fully healed or creating more injury around something that's weak. So guarding is good. The problem is after things have healed, do we still carry those embodied cognition stories with us? Mm -hmm. And so banging one's shin or hurting one's back is a really good example. And so as we move, we notice where there's freedom, where there's not. Sometimes after moving, the body is really awake and we can notice where blood is flowing or where there's life vibrating around there. It's quite palpable as, as you've mm -hmm. experienced in, in doing this work. But we're also with a sort of curious non-judgment 
noticing where we don't feel that. And we can create some presence around that and say, are you willing to join in or are you holding back? And if you are holding back, maybe there's a really good reason to not mm -hmm. let my knee go because I've, you know, it's not ready. But maybe in this very safe moment with the support of the surrounding tissues and, and, and the fact that you're not challenging it physically, it's willing to let go. And so through this mind-body work, we get to feel places where we're awake, where we're, awake, where we're not awake. And, and then see that map in a different way and invite pieces that have been fragmented off to reintegrate into the whole. But it has to be done with so much respect and patience and kindness, even within oneself. Mm. A, a lot of my students in our community-based classes are therapists. Um, yeah. And when their client comes in and sits across from them, they don't say, okay, remember that really intense <laughs> issue? Let's, let's really drill into that today. All right. Um, ra rather, they'd say, how are you coming in today? Um, where would you like to begin? Um, and, and they just kind of wait at the edge for a softening. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of these practices, um, if they're done effectively, have that sense of learning how to collaborate with ourselves with respect and judgment. Mm. Uh, and that's really hard. Sometimes it's, I mean, it's hard for us to have that. For me, I can speak that, that empathy, that kindness, that understanding for others, but it's even harder to do it for ourselves. And, yeah. But here we have a physical practice that, that grounds it. Yeah. And how you just described that uh, feels really exactly like the way I've heard it described but on an emotional landscape. So you were just talking about the physical body, but is it the same? Do you view it as the same process in like working with our own emotions and kind of internal emotional mental patterns? Like it, it feels exactly the same. I think they are. And I think they're one and the same. I think mm -hmm. the language I would typically use in a group has a bit more of a somatic thing, like feel mm -hmm. your abdomen and, and feel where right. you can feel, feel where you can't feel. What's what's in that unexplored space? And can you just kind of lean into it a little bit? And we do that in the pelvis. We do that in the, in, you know, very intimate places in our body. And I think it's implicit that that holding back is not just physical. In some of the later practices, very similar to the Buddhist training, uh, we take elements of traditional Chinese medicine um, that are associated with different organ systems. And we'll sit with grief for a while with the lungs. Uh, we'll mm. sit with anger in the liver. We'll sit with uh, sadness, um, etc. You know, fear in the kidneys. And I think, to me, I typically don't do that work right away. Right. I think uh, people have to both feel comfortable in their body physically, they have to feel comfortable with the group. Um, and then we sort of just kind of gently, and, and even there, it's very respectful and playful and you're not forcing change. You're just feeling really brave to be living at the edge. Yeah. Part of, of what we were just talking about and kind of the relationship between working with the physical body and then kind of that almost flipping over to be able to work with the emotional um, space is making me think of Kathy Kerr's work, who uh, you were just awarded the, the Kathy Kerr Award for Courageous and Compassionate Science. So congratulations and well-deserved. And I know that Kathy was a dear friend and colleague of yours. And um, so she had was developing this whole theory before she passed about how mindfulness, you know, working with the body and the breath and these kind of, we often start in these physical spaces and tracking bodily sensations and how that same kind of capacity can then translate basically into our ability to, you know, have less stickiness around emotions or rumination, for example, or being able to notice and let go of things. So anyway, just throwing that out. Yeah, no, I think it's a really, yeah. um, it, it's so obvious. I mean, I, I remember even teaching this 30, 40 years ago about the links between body, body mind, and breath, but... <laughs> A young person having an emotional experience, obviously there's a link between the breath, the body, sure. and the emotions. It's there. We're doing a fun little experiment now. There's a big movement uh, across the hospitals, which I think has been 
further highlighted with COVID about the wellness and stress of healthcare providers. It's such mm. an important thing, mm. and we're starting to realize the epidemic of depression and anxiety and yeah. and, and, and sadly suicide in this population, but also um, the need to teach tools, to give tools to help resilience and wellness. Um, it's interesting that many of the wellness initiatives have focused on more top-down emotional regulation and mm -hmm. cognitive skills and lifestyle planning. And so we have one of the first wellness studies um, for chronic neck pain in nurses. And I remember introducing this to one of the wellness uh, directors and they said, you know, we don't really think about chronic pain as related to wellness. But obviously, if your neck is always hurting, there's a reduction it's in huge. wellness. Yeah, yeah. So, th so this is a, a fun little project, a practical one, because I send a lot of my Tai Chi students to people who do manual therapies, uh, mm -hmm. massage, rolfing, chiropractic. Mm -hmm. And these practitioners send me their patients as well. And so this is a study combining a course of 10 chiropractic treatments plus four months of Tai Chi training that happened together. And the hypothesis oh. here is that the internal work, the self-work of becoming aware of your body will make a big difference in how you carry yourself and obviously help with mobility and reduce pain. But it also makes you more receptive to the treatments you get from the chiropractor. Mm -hmm. And the mobility you get from the massage and the chiropractic adjustments allow you to appreciate your own mobility. But the link going back to this cognition piece is we're also interested in whether this changes their ability to deal with complex tasks without medical errors. Oh. Um, so if you're not in pain and you're feeling pretty good, because if you think about it, for me, you know, I get stressed. My mm -hmm. go-to place is my neck and shoulders. They mm -hmm. seize up. But the converse is not clear. If we clear out all that junk and we feel like the head floats and we can breathe differently, when we're faced with a stress, is it as sticky or does it just repel because the mm -hmm. system is no longer um, weak in its links? And so I think this is a way that we're sort of touching where I think Kathy was going um, through changes in what we would call the body. Do we get less sticky with emotions in the mind? Right. Yeah. Um, I'm also wondering, because you've spent so long studying um, kind of Eastern systems of the body and Chinese medicine and things like that, uh, and a couple times I've talked on the podcast with folks about um, the subtle body and the energy body uh, that comes from Eastern uh, philosophies. And so I'm wondering how you view that and incorporate that into kind of your Western medicine approach and also... Is there advancing research on how the subtle body maps uh, correlate with what we understand from the Western systems of the body? That's such a rich question. Um, and it is something that interests me. And I'm going to answer it in two ways. The first one is, for years now, I can present my research on mind-body connections as cognitive motor interactions. Right. Um, and I can talk about all the things about Tai Chi without using words like chi or energy and that's, mm -hmm. I think it's useful. It's, um, we're trying to build bridges uh, between different cultures and communities. And, and so the, I have no problem with that. We're also interested in what these different um, comparisons between cultures, what we learn at the edges can teach us. And so I'm still continuing uh, quite a bit of acupuncture research. I have one student that's following up a question that uh, Helen Langevin and I asked in a paper called What's the Point? And it's about acupuncture and not knowing what this map means. I mean, we know right. from good data now, especially for pain, that acupuncture is clinically valuable. It, it reduces mm -hmm. pain and, and suffering, um, and its effect sizes are real, and it's even robust against placebo needling yeah. in, in research. But we have no idea why, what an acupuncture point is, what a meridian is. Right. Um, and so we have uh, one of my students is doing some interesting work on a neuroinflammation model. And there's some theories that some of these points, um, there may be dermatomes that connect mm. to organs. So when the organs, in this case, we're using an irritable bowel disease, um, when people with irritable bowel come in, are points that are associated 
um, with those nerve pathways, which also overlap with acupuncture points, more or less sensitive. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to do that. But there's a really interesting, provocative set of research coming out of a lab in Boston by um, a scientist, a young scientist named Mike Levin. I believe he's at Tufts uh, Medical and Dental School now. And he's been working with things like flatworms and frog regeneration. Interesting. And he can do all sorts of genetic manipulations. And one of the things that he's proposing, and there's some really good podcasts that can be seen and very high level publications um, that are really rigorous research, is that they can manipulate the electric field around developing organisms and have them make two heads for mm. flatworms or one. Um, wow. You take a flatworm and you cut it up into pieces. Each piece knows how to create the rest of it. Yeah. But if you change the electric field around that, the morphogenetic field, this higher level, well, I don't know if it's higher level, but this more subtle body, as you use the word, um, shapes the ontogeny, the, the um, wow. morphogenetic development. And they can even manipulate genes to turn that on and off. And regardless of what you do with the genes, this is a level of information that is independent of genetic and epigenetic unfolding. Wow. And it's very new research. It's just come out in the last couple of years. Um, he's got a position at the Wies Institute. He's really um, recognized as a leading edge scholar. But I think that there's some richness there that we are starting to understand from a biomedical perspective. And I would say that when we do our practice, going back to you know, where do you feel flow in your body? Sometimes you can even feel a little bit of vibration off your body, this subtle body. Where are there gaps in there? And I think if we fix those gaps, those then cascade down or reduce down to changes at the more physical and biological level. I know you've also, in a kind of interesting circle back, you've been thinking about how integrative medicine can be relevant to climate change and how we respond to climate change, um, bringing back kind of your environmental roots. Do you want to say anything about the way that you're thinking about those links? Yeah, I, we had a, a program manager who was really committed to understanding and making a difference for climate change. And so we started having some discussions and I feel like I, she brought me out of retirement for my interest in, in right. that. And we wrote a small article, which really got me thinking and got us thinking. Um, this is Atra Nusrat. And at the very fundamental level, um, we as humans are such a huge part of the global ecosystem, but mm -hmm. hospitals too. So it's, it started at the most obvious level. Um, what's the footprint of a hospital. And if you look at the data, I forget the exact numbers, but the healthcare industry contributes something like, you know, 15% of the carbon budget of the planet. There oh, wow. are huge machines, the, the wow. healthcare industry, even just thinking about all the, the resources that are driven into and out of the hospital. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of movement now trying to make hospitals more green and minimize mm. your footprint. And that's happening across the Harvard hospitals. Mm. And we had some really nice discussions with some of the leaders in that area as we were writing our article. But then there are simple things like if you take care of yourself uh, a little bit more, if we do a little bit more prevention and a little bit more self-care, then you go to the hospital less. <laughs> and then there are simple models that say, you know, if you ride your bike um, half the time that you would be driving your car, not only are you burning less fossil fuel, but you're less likely to go to the hospital. So you impact the carbon models in multiple ways. Right. And then I think we kept going further and further down. And I do think that, you know, based on work that you and others have done um, and in Mind and Life, as we do these practices, we feel a little bit more porous. Uh, self mm. and other starts to dissolve. Mm -hmm. um, our ability to have empathy for other organisms and compassion and I think that there's a way in which the more we care for ourselves and see ourselves as part of something bigger, the less likely it is for us to act in a way that um, 
doesn't take into account the rest of the environment. And so I think Mm -hmm. we came up with this phrase, think globally, but act extremely locally, which is contemplate your navel. That's, you know, if you can take care of yourself, then you won't be anxious and do a lot of unnecessary shopping, which is bad for the carbon budget of the Mm. planet. And, you know, there are very, very practical ways that these contemplative practices scale out. But I think it goes from hospitals all the way down to individual practices. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Because there is such a, um, not necessarily debate, but discussion happening about where is the most effective impact in responding to climate change? Is it all at the policy level or, you know, what impact can we really have as individuals? And I think this is an angle that I haven't heard discussed as much, at least in the public discourse of, you know, really working with our own minds and how does that change us as individuals in terms of the way we view ourselves as autonomous or interdependent. And then, like you said, stress behaviors and the ways that we interact in the world. So it's really yeah. helpful. I think the solution is going to be like everything. It's like working at it at a lot of levels, just like yeah. with racism. We need to deal with things at the systemic level and, and all the way down to ourselves. And the individual level. Yeah. Um, so you've talked about how as um, well for yourself, being a practitioner and being a researcher, you have kind of two labs, and both of them are critical. Could you share uh, a little more on that? Sure. Just so you know, we have some ticking coming in. Oh, That, yeah. unfortunately, is my radiator. radiator. Boston style. <laughs> so at times, I do feel like I live in two different laboratories. One is my teaching and that's my empirical lab. Maybe it's where I see my patients, so to speak, because I'm not a physician. And uh, one is the other laboratory of the Harvard Medical School and the Mind-Body Movement Laboratory. I lead there. Mm-hmm. And they're really synergistic. On a good day, I'm just grateful to have both of these career trajectories. Um, I go to teach at the Tai Chi School, and I experience things. I start to digest all the things I've read in my research and that I've heard from other talks and colleagues and it gives me a language to teach i get feedback from my students um, and that gives me some ideas to bring into the laboratory to test and then we test those and then it's it's this iterative process we get an answer we try something and maybe it affects how we teach how we understand things Um, it really affects how i teach i bring science into my teaching yeah i think that affects some level of receptivity to the western community i work with Um, Definitely. You know, I think in the old days, it was the shaman who had the rattle that had the most respect. If they said something, you would believe it. Here, the scientist has a lot of power. But integrating it, um, not as truth, but as a way of seeing things. Um, You know, we can talk about energy channels, but we can also talk about connective tissue channels and how the research showing that when you stretch this alters gene regulation and inflammation and um, how there is this map through this body that connects us, uh, really gives people some some ways of experiencing this work in different ways. Yeah. Well, um, I know we're coming up on our time, so I just wanted to ask if you have kind of big picture take-homes for listeners uh, from your multiple perspectives that you bring to this work. One of the things I'd like to end with is just an appreciation and acknowledgement of all the work that Mind and Life has done I think just in putting those two words together, um, there's a sense of bridging and connecting. Mm. And I think whether it's the yin-yang of Tai Chi or whether many of the things we talked about, this, this fragmentation of what we call mind and body or different organ systems, or even just different communities within a, an environment. For example, we have these grand rounds that often have people who don't talk to each other or even carry a lot of implicit bias um, towards Mm -hmm. each other um, coming together. For example, we have a really rich line of research on chiropractic care for migraines. And Mm. this has brought neurologists and chiropractors together and they don't typically commingle well. Um, And so I think what Mind and Life is doing, what the Dalai Lama is doing in terms of creating these dialogues is very much what we're trying to do at the Osher Center is that there's a lot to learn at the interface of, yeah. of ideas and cultures that don't typically mix together as an alchemy. 
And I think that the more we can stay open to hearing and understanding other people's perspectives, to collaborating outside of our departments. Um, um, and, you know, as Evan had said, you know, we need philosophers as part of research teams. Yeah. You know, that that just sounds, I most of my <laughs> colleagues would roll their eyes at that. But, <laughs> right. But you get that and I get that. And yeah. He, he clearly gets that. I yeah. think that that there's the whole um, really bringing things together and looking for emergence um, is going to be where we're going to have a lot of creativity and impact. And so much of our society right now, whether it's scientific or social, is about subgroups and othering. And so I mm -hmm. think the more like organizations like Mind and Life and, and other places, and it's what we're trying to do at the Osher Center, bring people together mm -hmm. to, to think in a safe space um, is really needed. That's great. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Peter. This was really fun. I'm glad we had the chance to speak and thank you for all of your work. Uh, thank you, Wendy. This is way more fun than I can have even imagined. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There you can also support our work, including this podcast. <laughs>